0: Welcome to the Republican Professor this morning for me in California. we have with us Rob Coons Hi for, Hi Rob. Hey, Thanks Lucas, for being good here to you. yeah, oh, my pleasure. We also have uh Curtis joining us from Texas, so both Curtis and Rob are in Texas. uh Rob, do you go by Robert that's or Rob good. Rob generally mm-hmm. Rob okay, that's what I thought
1: yeah yeah
0: Rob is uh professor of philosophy at university of texas at austin we've uh, asked him to come on and talk about metaphysics <laughs> and, <Right. laughs> uh, he's got this wonderful yeah. book with uh, tim Pickavance um called the F- metaphysics the fundamentals i'm holding it up for those who are, are only listening on uh, spotify or apple podcasts it's um <clears throat> It's not a long book, it's, it's about two, 241 pages or so. Um, it's an academic book, it's, it's meant to introduce, um, my guess is this, this would be for undergrad, upper level or maybe graduate students, basic graduate yeah, students.
1: Uh, I've been using it for an upper level undergraduate course. That's right, okay. our, our sort of core course in metaphysics. So you don't mess around over there in Texas. No, we throw, throw them in the deep end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's
2: how you learn.
0: Yeah. This, yeah. Uh, I just warn you. This is a very good book. <laughs> um, <laughs> from my perspective, it's very good. Uh, it, oh, it. Thank you. It, it takes. Um, I I I. How do I say this? Um, gosh, this is so challenging for me. Um, I think it takes a necessary. Skill like metaphysics, a necessary field of study, which is part of philosophy, in the discipline of philosophy, uh, and does a pretty dang good job of laying out some options uh, in the field, and at the same time, gently defending a way of doing it, and some substantive views on the various topics. Would you say that's fair?
1: I think that's right, yeah. So we, we tried really hard to be fair to a number of different perspectives, including one that uh, goes back to David Hume, the great Scottish skeptic, uh, who uh, has a lot of followers these days. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of ironic, because Hume himself thought that metaphysics was a waste of time. But <laughs> a lot of people doing metaphysics are inspired by Hume, <laughs> but they're inspired to do it in a, in a very minimalistic way, you might say. Mm. So that, that, that's a big part of the book is to, is to present the options. But yeah, I think, I think it comes across pretty clear where Tim and I are coming from, that we, we prefer the more, a more robust. Um, and ultimately, um, I think what we're trying to do is, is to make sure that the classical picture of Plato and Aristotle is at least one of the options, right? It's on the mm. table for discussion.
0: That's awesome. Uh,
1: I'm going to start
0: this interview if I haven't already started. <laughs> I'm going to start at the end um, because I love how you ended this. Um, it, you end very quickly. The conclusion is only two short paragraphs. The very end. I'm I'm talking about the concluding part of the concluding chapter. Mm-hmm. You say, Aristotle claimed that to deny metaphysics is to do metaphysics. We have seen some reason for agreeing with Aristotle. The arguments against metaphysics, whether anti-realist, lightweight realist, skeptical, or fictionalist, those are all terms that are defined in the book, are all based on certain conceptions about truth, meaning, knowledge and explanation that inevitably raise metaphysical questions. If metaphysics is inevitable, then our aim must be to do it as well as we possibly can. What a great way to end. I love that. Skepticism can be helpful as an aid to humility, and humility can in turn be a propellant for open mindedness and new discoveries. We have tried to demonstrate in these 10 short chapters, that a new age of metaphysical discovery is indeed underway. And that's the last sentence of the book. Right. What a great ending.
1: Oh Thanks. such a.:
0: Optimist. Yeah.
2: It begs for a follow-up. <laughs> well, for those, oh, he that... did
1: write one actually. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. There's a this that. is the Atlas yeah, of Reality. That's right. That's right. Two years later, I saw the price tag and
0: I was like, "Oh, I
1: know I it's, it's outrageous." For... I'm sorry about that. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I am totally. It's not your fault. Hundred and whatever eighty or something dollars. So yeah, I, I don't sell many copies of those, but uh, but yeah. Uh, hopefully, eventually, it'll be available. You know, Kindle yeah. or something more more inexpensively. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: let's uh, get into the term metaphysics. Uh, that's probably a good way to start. Yeah. Some of these people listening right now in the future <laughs> are thinking you're, you're meaning um, maybe we're meaning uh, Barnes and Noble section that where all right. the weird books are.
1: I know and, exactly.
0: Or, or some of the mountain towns I grew up in, in Colorado, where there's like yeah. uh, turquoise yeah. jewelry, and then there's some other yeah. incense and stuff yeah. now metaphysics yeah. is weird but it's not that weird. weird.
1: That's right. That's a good way to put it. That's right. Yeah. There's almost no overlap, right. Between what I call metaphysics and astrology crystals and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So what is metaphysics? I mean, it's a great question. The term comes from Aristotle. Uh, it's a, it's a title got attached to one of his books. He, he himself never uses the term. Uh, it just means in Greek after physics, uh, he'd, done, he'd done a book on physics, and this is sort of the follow-up to that. Uh, Aristotle t- actually does have a term for it, though. Sometimes, sometimes he calls it wisdom, and sometimes he calls it first philosophy. And I, I, like, I like the first philosophy uh, notion, uh, not in the sense that it's where you start doing philosophy. because It's not. I think it's actually where you end up doing philosophy. Uh, most people are attracted to philosophy either through ethics, questions about how should I live, what is duty, and so on or perhaps aesthetics or political philosophy, or even epistemology you might start worrying about yeah. how do I know anything about the world? Right. Uh, so those are the entry points into philosophy, but the, the deeper you get into philosophy, the more you realize that everything is connected to this one core, which is the question about what reality itself is most fundamentally like. What are the basic building blocks of reality? Because if you, you, you have to at least have a kind of, um, tentative position about those core questions in order to begin to address any of these other questions, ethical, epistemological, and so on, uh, which is what I was trying to get at that last chapter too, which is to say, you know, as Aristotle says, you, you can't escape metaphysics in a sense. You can ignore it, but you can't escape it because to escape it, you would have to have a view about what reality is like, and why because reality is that way. We can't do metaphysics, but that's just that is metaphysics, right? So, uh, so it's it's an inescapable kind of thing for us. Um, I mean, there, uh, you know, what I tried to do in that last chapter too, and you might ask why I put it in the last chapter. Uh, I wanted to expose my readers, students, to the the nitty gritty of metaphysics, some of the actual issues on the ground, so to speak, first. Uh, and show them that, that there are interesting arguments and considerations that may point us in one direction or another. And then in the last chapter say, sort of look back and say, okay, it, was metaphysics possible? Did we do any? <laughs> Did we succeed at all? Uh, and, I, and hopefully at that point they'll say, well, yeah, you know, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it, it's different from physics or chemistry certainly or from literary criticism or these other things, it's its own thing, but it's, it's doable. Right. Uh, and you can gain some insight right by by trying to do it
0: when you say do metaphysics i've always thought that i understand what you mean but i yeah. i've just confessed that i've always thought it was a strange phrase i've also also thought it was strange yeah. to say do philosophy but yeah. maybe it's just because my dad was a carpet layer and worked with his hands and i was really it, did things <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 but but um I know what you mean because when you get into it, and you're you're clearly working. You have to work to get through this book. You have to earn work. it. work. Yeah, yeah, you have to. I mean, I've it.
1: literally broken out in a sweat doing philosophy. Right? <laughs> I mean, it, it 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 burns calories to uh, think through think through some of these things. Really? Wow. Where yeah. did
0: you study yeah. for your your graduate training?
1: Um, so I did I did a couple of years at Oxford between undergraduate and graduate school and school. Uh, studied philosophy and theology there oh, and cool. then ended up at UCLA uh, to do philosophy, which was a, um, a very typical um, department in lots of ways focused mm-hmm. on language and logic as people were in the 80s. Um, we also had an interesting Christian subculture there, though, we had uh, Robert really? Adams and other Marilyn Adams, oh, and, and that yes. attracted a whole bunch of Calvin yeah. college people and things like that. So okay. we, we had a weekly Bible study in the Adams' house. And uh, so it was a pretty uh, friendly place to do to do philosophy as a, as a Christian.
0: Was there a famous guy there like David Lewis or something? Was that was that a name that was there?
1: Well, Lewis was always was at Princeton. Um, oh, he at Princeton. Okay. Career, and then he visited Australia. Um, and we had a lot of famous yeah. people. Uh, I worked with Tyler Burge. Uh, he was my supervisor. And um, we had yeah, Alonzo okay. Church, one of the great logicians of the 20th century. So oh, cool. we, we'd had um, a reputation you know, from the 60s, 70s as being one of the key places in, in logic, actually. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that's interesting in, in the academic world of philosophy is that metaphysics has really experienced a renaissance over the last, well, over the course of my career, 35, 40 years. Uh, When I first started studying it as as a graduate student, uh, almost everybody was doing philosophy of language or philosophy of logic, maybe ethics and things like that. Um, if you could tell this by just looking at the, we have this thing called the Jobs Philosophers uh, Newsletter, right? That lists yeah. all the, the postings of the jobs. If you if you dig out one of those from the 80s, you'll find almost all of the jobs are in those areas. And now you'll see a lot of M&E, which means metaphysics and epistemology. Uh, that's uh, really come back into, into a big way. And it's, it's an interesting transformation, actually, because um, if you go way back, early 20th century, uh, many of the great minds in philosophy were arguing that any kind of metaphysics or theology or ethics for that matter are impossible they're just nonsense because Mm -hmm. the only thing that we can talk about meaningfully are natural phenomena the sorts of things that you can measure and observe and and test in a laboratory this was the so-called positivist movement Mm -hmm. so so to go from the 1930s to the 2020s and to go from a world where but metaphysics is almost not even allowed right? it was considered to be complete nonsense the world where it's it's sort of it's once again the dominant theme really of of academic philosophy that's a very interesting sort of intellectual transformation that's taken place
0: wow so you didn't go to ucla to to be in style and like be around famous people you went mainly, I mean, I'm talking about like movie stars.
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, no. Yeah, right. Yeah. They were famous in our world. <laughs> they
0: were famous in a different way. I gotcha.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did you
0: study with at Oxford?
1: Um, my main tutor was a man named David Charles, who's uh, he's an Aristotle scholar, and uh, he's uh, at Yale now. Kind of interesting fact, my son is studying philosophy. Uh, and he's doing a PhD with David at Yale right now. So no David's, David's wow. had Coonses at both at the beginning and the end of his <laughs> career, which is kind of that, fun. That's kind of a compliment to
0: you that he watched his dad do this and you didn't totally turn him off from the field or the discipline.
1: Yeah, it's gratifying. I have to admit. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's sort of taking up where I left off. So it'll be where were the dinner? What Kuhns were the 0. dinner 2, conversations 2. or the
0: breakfast conversations in the Coons household at uh growing for him growing up were they
1: philosophical a lot um not especially really not not until uh maybe when he got to high school and uh uh huh. and, and then it was when he went off to college we talked about it some as well wow oh. but i didn't try to push it too hard when i were i don't know i i may have actually done more with my daughters they're bens the youngest and, uh, and, and so I, I think, I, I think I did turn them off philosophy early on because <laughs> I would, I would sometimes back then I was doing some philosophy of language. And so sometimes you'd want to test, uh, you know, <laughs> your linguistic intuitions, what do you call it? Sure. So, you know, would you say that a caused this, if he did X, Y, and Z and, you know, they say that kind of stuff. I don't want to do it. Right. So like, so stop. <laughs> say, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So kids can, kids can understand philosophy. And it's interesting to talk to them about because they have intuitions about things.
1: Oh, for yeah, sure. they definitely have intuitions. Yeah, I don't know. I have, I have mixed feelings about this. Actually, okay. um, I mean, Plato. Plato says you really shouldn't study philosophy until you're fifty <laughs> in the Republic, <laughs> and there's something to be said for that. Actually, um, I mean, obviously, I make my living teaching at to eighteen to twenty-two year olds, so I, I, oh. I have a vested interest in thinking that's at least okay. Right. Um, but I do. I worry a little bit about pushing philosophy on on kids who are too young. I do think it's important that they get a background in. History, science, literature, other sorts of things before they come to the philosophical questions. Mm. I mean, you know, the, Plato worries about this, right? Worries that if you give if you give these tools of disputation, so to speak, to to teenagers, right? <laughs> they're going to they're going to use them, you know, in, in destructive ways, and it won't actually won't actually help them. They need to have a certain amount of uh, they need to be centered and sort of grounded in in real life, have some maturity, and some then life experiences. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I think that I think that does help. I mean, you know, because children are impressionable, too, you know, you got to be careful about sort of unloading a philosophical system on them Mm -hmm. uh, that will then kind of warp their whole approach to the world. Um, Right,
0: right, right. You got IRB approval, though, before you did some of these thought experiments
1: on your kids, right? No, it sure didn't. (laughs) Uh Oh, we won't tell. We'll edit that part out.
0: (laughs) Let's get into your book. Uh, I'd like to poke around in it. Um, I think, uh, well, let's, I guess we talked about chapter one for the most part. Let's, let's look at uh, chapter two, truth makers. Don't necessarily have to go through the whole, every, every little thing, but, but truth makers is interesting. Um, We, but we think that there is such a thing as truth. I guess some people don't, but that's right. I don't know how you could say there is no truth. Right, exactly. And say exactly. that that's true. It's right. like we don't believe that's true. Yeah. So so what's what's a right. what the, what's a truth maker? Um there there's a lot of technical terms in here so that's why I was mm-hmm. worried about the the right. uh right. But.
1: Yeah, we decided to start with truth just for the reason you suggested that uh it's a sort of thing that um almost everybody's committed to in some form or other. And, and, and it's, and it's actually pretty difficult to deny, you know, truth right, altogether, right? Cause yeah. then, uh, I mean, again, it's self-defeating, right. Cause if I right. say it's true, there's no yeah. truth. And, then I've yeah. uh, contradicted myself. You just so, look like an idiot. Right, exactly, <laughs> I, I think that's right. And, and yet and yet when you start reflecting on what truth is, it does start raising what we're calling metaphysical questions, which are, you know, what are things like and how do they relate to each other, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so let's say it's true that it's sunny in Austin right today. Okay, well, what's going on, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, there's something that's true, right? The thing I said, right, the, we might call it a proposition, And then, but there's more more than that, right? There's gotta be that proposition is somehow about something like Austin and sunniness and so on, right? Uh, And so so then uh, it's about something, but of course, if I say it's storming today in Austin, that's false, right? It's also about something, right? It's about Austin, about storms, right? So why is the one proposition true and the other one false, right? Uh, That's already an, an interesting metaphysical question. So uh, so the, the tradition that goes back to Plato and Aristotle suggests that when something's true, it's because it's been made true by something that exists. There's something that exists in the world. In this case, the sunniness of Austin, right? <laughs> uh, which which exists and which by existing makes this thing that I said true, namely that Austin is sunny, right? Um, so, um, so this is actually getting us pretty quickly into some fairly deep questions uh, because we've got to start grappling with what does existence mean? What does it mean? What's, and what sorts of things exist, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the sunniness of Austin, is that a thing? Well, <laughs> it must be because uh, we need it to exist in order to make this, the proposition true, right? Um, and, 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 and we can also ask, start asking, what does this making true mean? What does it mean to say that there's this thing and it's by its existing, it makes this other thing true. Um, It seems that there's a kind of um, explanation going on here, right, that that if I ask why is it true that Austin is sunny, uh, I point to this thing, the sunniness of Austin. That's the explanation uh, for the truth. Uh, not in the sense that it, I, I can explain it to you, Lucas. You wonder, why is it? Why? Well, here's why: because it's sunny. Right? That wouldn't be an explanation <laughs> to you, but metaphysically, it's an explanation, right? It, it explains what it is that what it is to be true, right? namely for there to be this other thing that explains its truth in this special kind of way. So that's what we're trying to get at there. Um, the other thing we deal in that chapter with deal with in that chapter is is a position called deflationism, uh, which is a view that says in a way, agrees that there's such a thing as truth, doesn't deny the reality of truth, but wants to say that actually true things don't have anything really in common. There's no mm-hmm. property of truth they all have in common. So if I say Austin is sunny today, and I say Lucas is drinking some water, and I say two plus two is four, I say a bunch of true things, right? Why are they true? Well, two plus two is four is true because two plus two is four. The the sun, it's it's, it's true that it's sunny in Austin because Austin is sunny, it's true (laughs) and so on. So each truth has its own completely separate uh, explanation. They have nothing in common whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, the, the tradition Plato and Aristotle would say, no, there is something in common. Namely, they all have a truth maker something which by existing makes them true. And the deflationist says, no, we're not going there. We're just going to go with the superficial kind of answer here. Uh, and I think that the problem with that for the deflationist is that you, can, you can't really then make any generalizations about truth at all. I can't say, right. here's a good way to seek the truth. Uh, avoid wishful thinking. Uh, try to gather lots of evidence. Those seem like general facts about truth right but in order for those general facts about truth to make any sense there has to be such a thing as truth <laughs> as a, not just as a not just as a bunch of facts about individual propositions but about something they all have in common something that all truths have in common namely a kind of correspondence to reality that that involves truth making facts of some kind so that's what we're trying to get get across in that in that uh, chapter 2 so to speak
0: that's great i'm going to reference a uh... A part of chapter one called method and metaphysics Mm -hmm. which i thought is a little relevant to what you just said because you're talking about explanation and you're talking about well basically how do you move forward and what are we trying to do and and so you say since metaphysicians study reality in its most fundamental and general aspects this is on page two in doing it, we must marshal as much evidence about the world as we possibly can. In other words, it's commonsensical kind of what you're doing, and I think that's important for people to get if they might be feeling a little bit of anxiety, because I could understand if I had no idea where you were coming from, um, it just just turns out I've met you before uh, I've I've sat at, not that you would remember, but we've, we've sat at the same table having dinner at one point. Um, and we had quite a long conversation there. That was about 10 years ago. <laughs> and then uh, you taught a symbolic logic course that I, I audited um, and benefited from. So I got a sense of who you were as a person. And I just, uh, I trust you is where I'm getting. And but if I was a, if I didn't know anything about you, I, I, and I didn't know kind of where you were going, I would be like, cause it takes a lot of energy to do this. And I know mm-hmm. not everybody lands in the right place. Yeah. Uh, they might be doing the best they can in so far as their own lights and how they see the world. And they're, they're obviously doing the work as with as much integrity as they can muster, probably. Yeah. Um, but um, I might start wondering okay, where, where are you, where's this end up? And, and can I get a sense of, of, uh, whether I'm just going to end up as a total crazy person after this, and I'm not right. going to have any friends and I'm going to have the, wrong <laughs> view of the world. It's going to yeah. be all horrible, but it's actually right. when I'm reading this, because I know I, and I know Tim not very well, but I have a sense of who he is. Um, I think I trust him as far as that goes. Uh, I think he has the a similar feeling that common sense is important to to kind to guide us, and it's almost like a desideratum uh, to capture as much of that as we can. Would yeah. you say that's a fair way to I think to put that's it?
1: right. Yeah, I've always okay. been sympathetic to um there's a there was a philosopher in Cambridge in England uh, called G. E. Moore, who who uh, in the early 20th century sort of made this point. Uh, he said, You know, look, here's a hand. And moreover, I know that this is a hand. Okay. And I'm really sure about that. Mm-hmm. So if you come along with a philosophical theory that tells me there are no hands or you never know that there's a hand, I'm going to be very skeptical of that argument because, you know, I'm going to be pretty sure that one of the premises in your philosophical argument is going to be something I'm more doubtful about than I am that this is a hand. Right. So, so anyway, that's just very, again, straightforward way of saying. Uh, we know we come into philosophy knowing a lot of things, right? If we didn't, philosophy would be, would be hopeless, right? Mm-hmm. Metaphysics in particular would be hopeless. So, so we should bring all that we know to bear, including, as you say, common sense. Uh, one of the things that comes up repeatedly in the book is a question about whether we can apply our ethical knowledge or moral knowledge to metaphysics, right? right. So, I know that there are people because. I know that I I owe people things if I've if I've harmed them or or I owe them gratitude if they've been good to me or whatever, uh, and that that tells me uh, that gives me some metaphysical information that 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 ethical knowledge I have about gratitude or desert or um, or um, free will right so um, so those are, those are all from my point of view perfectly fine to draw on those as you're developing your your metaphysical theories treating those as data. I mean, there are some people, as you say, who do metaphysics, who think uh, the only data that we can rely on is our latest physics, like just theoretical physics and nothing else. So people who do metaphysics that way. Um, but I mean, I, I think, why do that? I mean, that's, that's intentionally sort of tying not just one hand, but both hands behind your back, right, while you're trying to do this really difficult task of, of metaphysics. So, uh, so I, I think uh, I'm, I'm actually happy with looking at theoretical physics. And if it can tell us things about reality that we need to take into account in metaphysics, that's fine. But I don't limit our. I don't think we should limit ourselves to that kind of data.
0: Gotcha. Anything else you wanted to say about truth makers? Oh, sorry.
2: No, I was just going to say. I I, I think I think this is related. I was listening to uh, Joe Rogan. But he was he was talking about infinity and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson explaining infinity to him. And, and and he was just, you know, talking about how this is a mind blow. You know, this th- there's there's all these galaxies and they're this many far apart and there's black holes and there's more galaxies. And it just goes on, you know, and there's there's doppelgangers in all these galaxies of you in, in infinity. It's all possible. And, it, and I was <laughs> just struck with, wow, that, that's like totally take like going down the theory hole and and not <laughs> being grounded in reality yet mm-hmm. you know okay possible and and that's maybe taking it to its nth degree of what is possible but that's yeah. not what's happening <laughs> yeah yeah so that sounds no, like that's
1: right i mean an awful lot of people who are at least pretend to say, say they're doing theoretical physics right. are actually doing highly speculative philosophy mm. and um that's in a way that's what that you I just think, said that's yeah.
0: huge what you just said yeah yeah,
1: yeah um right and and often doing it badly too i have to say right (laughs) uh i mean uh, you know with all due respect to the to uh the dead i mean hawking is a good example of this right he talks a lot about time which is one of our big themes uh you know and uh, he doesn't understand the first thing about time from a from philosophical point of view uh and that and that distorts what he's trying to do Mm -hmm. i think that's
0: fascinating on so many levels because i'm looking at you rob you got all those books behind you you look smart you sound smart but it's stephen hawking i mean look at him it looks he looks even smarter than you and so that's what i go by yeah
1: yeah and, well yeah I and mean, there is this kind of physics worship right in our mm-hmm. culture and it, it shows up in philosophy too right uh, sure. and you know you can see why i mean they've done impressive things you know right. they shoot that's rockets right. and they build computers and all that that's but right. still, you know, I mean, we ought to be careful not to be overly impressed by that. Uh, right. Example of the cargo cults in the Pacific Islands, right, where uh, these Pacific Islanders, you know, people from Europe and America would arrive with their airplanes and stuff like that. And so they started worshiping, you know, the white people or whatever, because they had this <laughs> oh, cool yeah, technology. Right. That's right. right? That's and so right. just because the physicists brought us lots of cool technology, I'm not going to fall down and worship them and, and assume that uh. whatever they say is got is like directly from the mind of God, I'm going to, uh, you know, ask them to explain why they think they what they think and tell me if they have any good arguments and, you know, bring to bear this 2500 year old conversation about philosophy that's been going on to mm. these contemporary issues and not, not just kind of discard it all and think we can start from scratch.
2: Wow, that, that sounds like perspective.
0: <laughs>
1: do you have any yeah. do you have
0: any telescopes or microscopes in that office just to give you more credibility? <laughs> or a white
1: lab coat. I do yeah. have I do have a little digital computer I built myself. Um Wow. It's 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 a, it's, a a, it's not electronic, you crank it and it can it can add small oh, numbers cool. and stuff like that. Oh wow. But from a kit, from a kit, so not not from scratch, <laughs> but back when I was at high school. But uh, yeah, I've got that up on one of my things. Very but cool, yeah, man. otherwise than that, no, I don't have any uh,
0: Rob, let's hit some some stuff about causation. Uh, we're going to freak yeah. people out because people are like, whoa, this is really getting weird now. You're talking about causation, causation and powers. Um, yeah, it, it is a little odd to think that some people don't think that causation exists in the common sense way we think it exists, um, Yeah, but we have to account for what causation is if it's real. And I thought you, I really appreciated that chapter because you're, well, you're actually very clear, I think, in your, um, that that particular chapter, I, I was like, where, where are they going? And and then I, I finally got to the end where I was like, okay, they told me where they're going and that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah.
1: So you, you yeah, yeah. I think it's, a, theories, I think it's yeah. a real important set of topics um, that ends up leading in lots of different directions uh, through the rest of the book. And as you say, it really goes back again to David Hume who I mentioned earlier, who uh, was skeptical about any kind of metaphysics, but in particular he focused on the idea of causation, cause and effect, and he said um, that we actually don't know what we're talking about when we talk about cause and effect. That the, the very words are meaningless um, because we don't. I mean, he, he thought it because he thought of it because you know he, he thought we don't have any direct experience of cause and effect, right? So if I, if we don't I see it, we don't, yeah, see, I don't cause. see the connection itself. Right. I see the, I see the flame. I see the water boiling. I don't see the causation, right? I just now see if one a car
0: hits another there. car and you hear it, you, you might think commonsensically, you might think, no, I did see that. Yeah. So what do you mean by we don't see it?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, Elizabeth Anscombe another Cambridge philosopher makes exactly that point. Um, exactly. You, know, you watch a football game and, you know, the, the tackle tackles somebody. You saw the tackling, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's not like, uh, so, so, so what Hume claims is not actually obviously true, right? Uh, it, it seems to be quite plausible that in many cases we do um, perceive the causation. Um, now, of course, people back then were really obsessed with being absolutely certain about things. And so they were constantly worried about cases where I think I see causation, but it, it really didn't happen right uh, you know somebody's hooked things up in such a way that it looks like there's some flame and the water boiling but actually it's you know the water is not boiling because of the flame it's for some other reason the flame's not really there or whatever right, right. so that i can i misperceive the situation and they, then they try to generalize from those few cases of illusion to claiming i never see causation right and that's just a fallacy right, right. i mean just because i can hook up certain situations where i think i see a box, but really there's no box there. So therefore, I never see boxes. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, and it's a similar kind of worry. But in any case, in, in contemporary philosophy, though, there has been an attempt to um, pr- provide a kind of pared-down metaphysics, right? a metaphysics that has as few commitments to kinds of things and and uh, as possible Mm -hmm. and so uh david lewis uh we talk about quite a bit in the book uh he's 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 he's, he was he's not dead now but he was in princeton and he sort of typified this movement in in contemporary metaphysics which is to uh, have as little in your metaphysics as possible and so and so his picture of the world was that you've got events spread out in space and time And that's it, right? Uh, There's no, so to say that one event causes another event is merely to talk about a certain kind of pattern that happens to exist in this vast, what I call it mosaic of events that stretch out in space and time, right? So what does it mean to say that the flame is making the water boil? It just means that it's one of many events pairs where you had a flame and then subsequently some water boiled. It just fits into that pattern. Right, um, and and so there's nothing more to causation than that, than that that kind of regularity or whatever. There's mm-hmm. no there's no causation itself, and so, so it's just uh,
0: correlation. Then it's just correlation. It's just correlation. That's just right.
1: Correlation. And and uh, although you can distinguish between two kinds of correlation, basically, uh, and, uh, and this is this is how they get a distinction between quote causation. So and, every time I go bowling and I get a
0: strike, I can't really be that excited because it's, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, it's just correlated. You just
1: happen to be there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. You just happen to what throw it. So uh, the basic idea is that, um, uh, that, ca- that a causal law or a law of nature from this point of view is just a very um, efficient way of representing history, the history of the world, past, present, and future. And so what we try to do is we try to find those laws which will encapsulate as many patterns as possible, as simply as possible. And we'll call those the laws of nature. And then if one event follows another event according to this law of nature, then we call it a causal connection. And if it doesn't, then it's merely a coincidence or it could be a correlation of some other kind. So the thought is that you've got this bedrock of of fact, which is just the, the, the events arrayed in space and time with no real causal connection or power or anything like that. Then you build on top of that, these laws of nature, which are just right. very efficient, convenient ways of representing the mosaic. Mm-hmm. And then you can, you can recover much, if not all of our causal talk in terms of these laws of nature without really being committed to causation itself as a basic building block of reality. Right. So the alternative view, again going back to, to Plato and Aristotle, is that we have to talk about things having the power to make things happen, and that those powers and potentialities are themselves part of the bedrock of reality. That you have to include them uh, in in, ex- in explaining what reality is most fundamentally like, what it's really like in, in the end. Um, and th- so that's that's one of the big debates, really, of the last you know eighty years or so. Uh, I think, in fact, the the trend is moving towards the Aristotelian story here, because the the Humean picture has lots of, of lots of problems, right? That it that it runs into. Um, I mean, one problem I think we mentioned briefly in the book is the arrow of time. So why why does time go from past to future in such a way that causes are generally earlier than their effects? And the Humean doesn't really have any explanation for that. Um, you know, or any any, exp- I mean, in the end, I think they have to say that the the idea that time flows in one direction rather than another is just an, an illusion, kind of an aspect of our perception, but doesn't doesn't answer to anything uh, deep in reality. So that there's that sort of issue. Um, another problem um, that they that humans that, that Lewis or other Humeans face is uh, dealing with uh, thought experiments of various kinds. Right. So suppose you imagine a world where. There's just one electron, that's it, right? Very, very simple world. Um, Could that electron still have a negative charge? And could that negative charge still mean that that electron has the power to repel other negatively charged things? Common sensically, we'd say, sure, why not? I mean, just keep the electron, throw everything else away. The electron still has this power. Uh, The human has to say no, right? In that world, there's no power, there's no causation at all. There's just this electron sitting there, that's a very, very simple mosaic, right? Uh, and uh, there are, the only law of nature is there's an electron that sits there, <laughs> that's it. And so, and so it doesn't even have potentially any power to repel or be repelled, right? Um, hmm. Another thing that I think is very relevant here is-, is And you say
0: at, that's, that's a reductio ad absurdum kind of, is that where you're going? That's the right. idea, yeah, that's right, yeah. that's right,
1: exactly. So they have to yeah. say crazy things about these thought experiments, uh, exactly. That, that's the worry. Um, Another sort of related problem is, uh, is, is, is a problem that human himself is worried about, which is the problem of induction. How, do we, how, do we, how is it reasonable for us to think that the world will keep going on the way we've seen it go on so far, right? Mm-hmm. So well, how do I know that? Right. I mean, the law of gravity seems to work fine so far, but how do I know that it's going to continue to work in the future? What, what even gives me a reason to think that it would be? And um, Lewis and the Humeans have a real problem here because – if you look at all the possible ways in which events could be spread out in space and time, uh, the vast majority of those will be ways in which the law of gravity doesn't work, obviously, right? Now, now let's just focus on the ways that the mosaics or the histories of the world that are just like our world up to this present time, right? And then of course, one of those will be a way in which the law of gravity and other things continue to function, but there'll be lots and lots of other histories where things have gone that way up to now, but then things just go haywire from now on. No right, gravity, right, no right, stuff right. Stuff. Yeah. So if I'm looking forward and I, I'm trying to guess you know, what the future is going to be like, it looks like I should bet on no law of gravity, right? Because there's vastly more possibilities like hmm. that than there are where the law of gravity keeps working. Right? And the, the, what Lewis has to say to that is just to say, well, it's just a basic rule of reason that you don't do that. You just, you just stick to what you've seen so far. Um, and that's, I think, unsatisfying, right? Because yeah. um, you've got this argument that suggests that you shouldn't do that, right? That, that the odds are, are against you. Uh, and and Lewis just says, you know, screw the odds. You should just keep believing this anyway. Uh, so that, I think that was a serious problem as well. I mean, one, one last thing to mention here is uh, work that was done in the philosophy of science by a British uh, philosopher named Nancy Cartwright I think it's very interesting. I mean, the, the whole project of hume and the other early modern philosophers assumed that science is basically passive you just sort of sit there and watch things happen and you're writing down furiously you know trying to note what the patterns are so that you can, can accumulate your laws of nature and what cartwright points out is that the way scientists actually work is they isolate things and they poke them and prod them in various ways so in other words, why are they doing that? Well, they're trying to isolate things so that they can find out what powers they have, right? Mm-hmm. And elicit how those powers are exercised or manifested in their various possible sort of circumstances. So that, that active inter- or interactive manipulative side of science is very important. And it's, it's, it's something that doesn't make much sense on the Humean picture, but makes perfectly good sense on the Aristotelian picture where what's fundamentally out there are powers. And you want to you know, make them manifest themselves. You want to you, understand them. You want,
2: them to, you you want to try to cause something to happen.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. That's right. You <laughs> want to put things together and see what 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 happens yeah. as a, as a result of the causal powers that are there. The yeah, that helps.
0: That helps me predict the future. Right. As well, uh, which is what scientists are interested in doing. I mean, for the most right. part. I mean, maybe right. not paleontologists, but but like that's right. You know, it, it's helping me predict the future. Uh, You think of like the science of, you know, studying tornadoes or something. We're not just looking at the correlations. We're trying to figure out how to cope with this in the future. Right. For example,
1: or earthquakes or whatever. That's right. Um, That's right. We assume that, you know, we've we've noticed. That's That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah, in in meteorology, right? We know there are all these water molecules out there, right? Right. We assume that the water molecules are going to continue to be there, right? that it continue to have the nature they've had, and that nature is going to continue to ground the same powers that we've seen in the past.
0: Even though we've never seen the future. So how do we... That's right. So we're assuming quite a bit. So Nancy Cartwright, I just want to double check. She was against Hume
1: and David Lewis. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, she she tries not to do much metaphysics, but, okay. but I think her work had a lot of metaphysical implications. Uh, it suggested that that Hume and, and the Lewis this Lewis John Stuart Mill kind of tradition of reducing laws of nature to mere patterns that that that's really inadequate.
0: There's there's a lot going on here that we're 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 actually accomplishing. I thought I can't I can't believe we're actually accomplishing it, Rob, because you're so good. I can tell you are so dialed in teaching this to undergrads. Uh, I love to teach it. Yeah. Yeah. You're good. I think it's terribly important. Well, there's a, there's a kind of a a cultural issue here with philosophy. It sounds weird and it sounds kind of like, Whoa, philosophy of science, take philosophy of science, for example, philosophy of Mm -hmm. science, like, okay, isn't there just Mm -hmm. science? What what mm-hmm. what uh, what authority is philosophy of science? But <laughs> as you've shown, uh, science just assumes all sorts of philosophical, substantive philosophical positions. Like, for example, you know, we assume the future will be like the past. We we mm-hmm. assume that, and we want to explain the future. Well, we want to explain the past mm-hmm. by explaining the past. We take it for granted that we're predicting the future, mm-hmm. but that's not based it's purely on science there's all sorts of philosophy going on in there right that's right Did you say that's fair okay
1: yeah absolutely yeah yeah you know, about, it, okay sorry. I mean, it sometimes could be hard even to draw the lines there between philosophy and science actually
0: yeah um, well let's talk about properties if you want to um yeah, properties in particulars. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, And then we definitely have to get to the uh, the passage of time. I wanted to make sure we got to that. Um, yeah. People so uh,
1: love that topic. So definitely if we skipped property,
0: and I think we, if we skipped properties in particulars, I, I would probably be horsewhipped by somebody uh, in the future. <laughs>
1: so uh, I'll say something real briefly about it. Yeah. 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 I mean, it properties it, it, in it particulars. flows in a way out of the two chapters we've just considered, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, we've, we said there should be there should be these facts or truth makers out there, right? The fact that Austin is sunny, but well, what does that mean? I mean, it looks like you have to have Austin a thing, right? And you <laughs> have to have sunniness, <laughs> right, or something what, like what that. What is right?
0: Austin uh, the thing, though? I mean, isn't it just like some? How would you well, say it? Like we all agree. I don't, well, I don't ever remember anybody asking me to agree that Austin was a thing. So my agreement has nothing to do with it, but it's not like I agree. And when I get there, there's some things I don't agree about with Austin. So I I wish I could just disappear, make make that part
1: disappear. No, no,
0: I don't. I never agreed with that part. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, right. And actually we have a whole chapter about this kind of stuff, which is chapter six about parts and holes, right? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, Austin seems to be what we would say, just a heap of things, right? People, <laughs> buildings, roads, and so on. And we collectively, we call that Austin. Um, but in chapter four, we're, we're not going to, in five, we're not going to dig down that deep. We're just going to say, okay, let's just take Austin at face value. Suppose it's a thing, right? Um, I mean, if you're not happy with that, you know, give me an electron or a quark or something, right? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> whatever, whatever you're willing we'll to take grant Austin. Is, is a single thing, right? <laughs> okay. And then you know, having I guess sunniness is something like having you know relatively little cloud cover or something like that in the sky above us, right? So you've got you've got a a property, right? Uh, the sunniness, which you can see repeated all over the place. I mean, it might be sunny in Dallas or in Orange County right now as well, right? Uh, and then you have Austin, which has various properties, right, including being weird, right, as well as being, being <laughs> sunny, right? Vaccine signs, uh, yeah. So um, science. Right, right. And so, um, so yeah, the, and this has been a big question. How is, how is this possible, right? How is it possible for uh, two cities like Austin and, and um, uh, Dallas, let's say, both to be sunny, where that's the, the, the same in their sunniness, yeah? And yet they're different cities, they're different places, right? Yeah. So it's, it, it's a problem that Plato, I think, was perhaps the first one to really think about deeply. Um, and he comes up with the idea that there have to be these things he calls universals, which um, are the things that can be repeated. And so they represent, they correspond to the properties. So there's, a, there's something like a universal of transparency, let's say, right, which is, uh, put, which is instantiated by, found in different objects, different material objects, right, at, at the same time or at different times. Right. And then that raises interesting questions about what's the relationship between those particulars and this this universal, right? Um, and uh, so that people who believe that in this in this in this area of philosophy are called realists. Um, the word realism is used in lots of different ways in philosophy, but this is a particular a very ancient use of the word, which just means that people that believe there are universals of some kind, and then usually called nominalists uh, comes from the Latin word for name, uh, and the idea is. There's really nothing in the world other than just names. So is sunny is a a name we give to various things, but that doesn't, those those names don't really correspond to anything in the world. They're just names that we sort of use in some conventional way. That's, that's at least the original thought. So, um, so yeah, so we look at, we look at that in in chapter four, um, consider a number of different options. I mean, one thing that I would do if I were rewriting the book today is I would include um, a more, more of an Aristotle-type view here, hmm. uh, which, which I didn't really include at the time because I hadn't really worked it out. No, I've, I think I've got a better handle on, on Aristotle's picture, actually. Because oh. uh, I, think, I think on Aristotle's picture, let's take, a, take another example, like the universal of humanity, right? Um, so on Plato's picture, there's this eternal timeless uh transcendent thing called humanity and and then and then you and i and, and curtis we each participate in it and that makes us human uh on the ourselves picture we each have our own humanity uh which make my my humanity makes me human lucas's makes him human and so on and um and so they aren't there isn't just a single universal but the humanities or forms as Aristotle puts it uh, are still sort of the same because they would be identical, if if our matter, the, the stuff that we're made of, were identical. So it's it's it, it's it's as if it's as if there it's as if you had this one universal humanity that gets kind of pried apart into various versions. In the different human beings by the matter that they're composed of. And that's what that's what multiplies the, uh, the 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 universal, so to speak. So I think it's an interesting solution, actually. That you know, on the one hand, avoids some of the awkward questions that Plato has as to what exactly these transcendent universals are and how they relate to the contingent world, and the other hand avoids the the sort of anything goes <laughs> problems of nominalism right mm-hmm. of of you know what's 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 the same in all human beings that makes it reasonable for us to call them humans uh, the nominalist has can't really say what that is
0: it is odd to say there's a bunch of humans but they don't have anything in common really yeah right, right exactly that's, and that's what you're saying the nominalist says right it, I mean, pretty much i mean they're they a couple they of variations. don't say it like that but they yeah yeah, right. There are a couple of exactly, variations yeah.
1: here. One, one could just, yeah, there's the ostrich humans, which could just Reductive. say, well, all human beings have in common the property of being human, right? <laughs> uh, and that, <laughs> yeah. that's all we can say. There's nothing more to say there's about that. There's
0: a class of humans.
1: Yeah. But, but, and I think that's, that's unsatisfying from a metaphysical theory. point of view because it requires us to treat every property that's shared as a metaphysical brute fact that can't be explained right? Uh, whereas the realist and the uh, Aristotelian can give a more general explanation for what is it makes humans humans, what does it makes apes apes, what does it makes transparent things transparent and so on. So there's, so the Aust- what we call the ostrich anomalous, the one who sticks his head in the sand, uh, he just refuses to give any explanation there at all. Right. The other option that rese- that anomalous take is to t- is to make the notion, the relation of resemblance, the fundamental thing. So what makes us humans is that we resemble each other. And you get a bunch of things that resemble each other enough and we that creates a species like like humanity, and there are a number of problems with this. I mean I think the basic problem is it's getting the cart for the horse, right because we resemble each other because we 're human right we 're not human because we resemble each other um, it would be sort of odd if if our intrinsic natures were the same because we stood in this external relation of resemblance to each other right um, i mean i can get I can get extrinsic properties like. Being in Texas is a property I have because I'm located where I am, right? But that doesn't make, that isn't an intrinsic property of me, right? Um, the It'd intrinsic property- if you
0: stuff. went to, to Texas or if you went to California
1: and you still had that property. Right, exactly. That would be weird, right? Um, so- uh, I, think so are... I
0: actually think it's illegal.
1: <laughs> yeah, it probably is. <laughs> I think it
0: violates federal law. <laughs>
2: but it would be inclined with Austin because Austin's weird.
1: That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that, those are some of the options that we're looking at in chapter four. Yeah. And then, and then in five is sort of related to the question of, again, what makes things different now? Yeah, right? Right. So chapter four is what makes us the same. Chapter five says, well, okay, if there is this real sameness. Uh, what is it that makes us different? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the answer I think ends up being there just got to, we just have to posit. We just have to suppose there are these things out there that That do the individual making or individuating as we say uh, in, in philosophy, um, sometimes they're called bare particulars, I think in the Aristotle's tradition it's called prime matter so it's this, it's this kind of stuff or these things that have no intrinsic qualities to themselves but but make two things that otherwise would be very much would be exactly the same different distinct things right. so yeah there's a lot of interesting subject that a lot of problems that arise there and 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 at that point we really are doing what aristotle would call metaphysics in the strict sense because we're dealing with things that are true if they're true at all of of all of creation right Uh, whether it's in time or outside of time or whatever it doesn't matter Uh, it's a very very general question about you know things being the same and different so to speak
0: can I ask you a question about your personal uh, uh, interest in philosophy, where that started? Because you've mentioned a couple things about um, you like kind of preserving the heritage of Aristotle and Plato. Yeah. Um, when you first encountered those figures, was that when you were interested in philosophy? Was it something you read? Is it is it the way it was taught or how did you get into that why why do you think it's important to preserve uh the relevance of plato and aristotle like you are doing yeah
1: it's a good it's a really good question um i mean there's been some movement in my thinking both positive and negative here. I think early on, I was definitely attracted to Plato and Aristotle both. Um, Even in high school, I was in the high school debate team. And looking back, I I realized that I'd I'd produce evidence cards where I'd have quotations from Plato or Aristotle about the state or whatever. Because I already, I was thinking in in these more fundamental terms, right? We're we're supposed to be debating welfare policy. And I'm sort of worried about what's the essence of the state, right? (laughs) And and so my my bent was kind of uh, in, in this philosophical direction. Uh, another thing that was a big influence on me were um, things like um, reading some C.S. Lewis and uh, Francis Schaefer, actually, as a high school student. And both of them said, pointed me to, to the idea that, that as Christians we had interesting things to say about these ancient philosophical problems. Then, um, when I got to college, I was actually at Michigan State. My advisor told me to take a philosophy course first semester, freshman year. And I didn't really, even though I'd read this stuff, I didn't really know what philosophy was. So it was it was a new thing for me, and we started with the ancient Greeks, started with um, pre-Socratics, and I just loved it immediately. Um, but then, you know, you
0: uh, loved the pre-Socratics.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, what did you yeah, like everybody. about them? <laughs> <laughs> well, because they were, um, uh, you know, they were wrestling with really interesting questions, right, about what reality is like. How do we, why can we make sense of, why is nature intelligible to us? That's really what they're getting at. Um, And um, I don't think their answers were all adequate, but, but at least they were asking the right questions. Uh, and in that course, we got we did eventually get to Plato and Aristotle. And uh, my 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 professor there was a big Aristotle fan, and mm. he used to he used to quote Dante a lot about Aristotle's the father of all that know and all this sort of <laughs> stuff. So I was uh, predisposed there. But then after that, having being a philosophy major, and then in graduate school, I think your attitude that I picked up from my colleagues and teachers was. Aristotle was fine, but that was 2,500 right. years ago. We've gone way yeah, past yeah, yeah. that now. We don't need to mess with that anymore. So it's been a gradual process, really, of my professional work uh, of gradually rediscovering that how much Plato and Aristotle knew <laughs> and how important wow. they were. Uh, and so it's still, it's still in process, actually, right? Um, so I'd say, you know, in the what uh, uh, 15 years, I guess now, since I started working on this stuff, I've moved a lot closer to Aristotle than I was even 15 years ago. Um, And it's just, it's just because I'm so impressed with him. I mean, when I, when I figure out what he's really up to, I realize, yeah, that makes a lot of sense Um, because he was so good at um, uh, again, at reflecting on the kind of data that we all have as human beings, right. And, and figuring out where that pointed, um, you know, without being biased by Anything much, right? I mean, he wasn't, I don't think he was a particularly religious person, but he wasn't anti-religious either. He was he just was willing to follow the reason wherever it led. So uh he's, he's yeah, provided a really crucial foundation for us.
0: There is a culture in philosophy departments, it seems like. I mean, it's not the same in every department, but it does seem like um there's there's social pressure anywhere you go because yeah. we're social people, we're social yeah. beings um how how have you found that pressure to conform uh constraint or have you found it as a motivation to do better work? Um, yeah, you know I, you probably know where I'm going with that, but i I just thought I would just throw it out there just general general question yeah. like that because yeah i I, f- I find those kind of questions how do you find yourself as a philosopher uh, amidst a pressure I've had the same issue myself because my PhD is in in public law and american politics and there's the similar constraints uh, yeah. different you know there's an empirical bias in some parts of political science and then there's there's also political like um overtly political uh pressures uh oftentimes partisan pressures on campus so how do you deal with that
1: yeah in my experience in philosophy it was mostly i think unconscious right on the part of of everyone right (laughs) that it would that is that there'd be just these unstated assumptions that everybody shared uh you know especially that that there's no god or you know or or things like that and um you know at, at least when i started my work in again the 70s 80s there was a very strong empiricist kind of bias uh hadn't quite worked their way out of the positivist trap of thinking that everything's got to be testable and so on um and yeah especially when you're a young person it's very hard to resist that uh you know that kind of as you say pressure i guess is the right way to put it um it is yeah yeah, you're impressionable you
0: mentioned it earlier when you said you got to grad school and there was this attitude i think was the word you used there was an attitude Mm -hmm. that uh, Mm -hmm. that was like so 2500 years ago
1: Right, exactly, yeah, that's right. I mean for me, a big big event was when when I was in England, um Alvin Plantinga came and gave um, lectures there. I can't remember if it was the Locke lectures or what well, he was some lecture series there and um and he very generously uh agreed to talk to me uh one afternoon. Uh, we spent maybe an hour together, uh, and I was at that point I had you know absorbed through the pores this kind of uh, logical empiricism that was still alive in Oxford at the time. It was kind of a Davidsonian version of it, but it was mm-hmm. still there. And so I would I would raise objections to Plantinga's approach from that perspective. And and at, at various times, in the conversation, Plantinga would say, okay, but you're a Christian, right? You told me that at the beginning. Uh, why as a Christian would you find this assumption at all plausible, this assumption that you're working with? And, and about eight times in that conversation, I said, well, come to think of it, it's not plausible at all. I don't know why I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just something that everybody around me believed, and I assumed that I and had you to, want to fit it. in. Yeah, exactly. And so that yeah. to me was a real uh, eye-opening experience, and I hope that ever since then, you know, I've, I've approached things and I've asked myself now, well, wait a minute, do I have any reason to accept this assumption that everyone around me is, is accepting? Uh, that's and- really helpful. That's really helpful yeah. to, for
2: people to hear that are in our audience, because I think that's how a lot of these types of things happen all through our culture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. It's, it's it's super difficult. I mean, I mean, I, I often use the example of behaviorism and psychology. The idea that there's actually nothing going on inside your head. There's no experiences or thoughts or beliefs at all. It's just behavior. And I thought, like, no Christian could ever accept that. But to have, there were some who did, right? Because everyone around them said there's no thoughts, no feelings. It's all just behavior. Okay, you know? And then they try to figure out how to reconcile that with with uh, with the Bible or something, which uh, you know, obviously doesn't make any sense. So it's much better, really, to stay grounded in in that tradition, it will help you to avoid a lot of crazy things, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Steer you away from the assumptions that are obviously just wrong, right? Right. And in the long run, that will pay off, right? Because, uh, you know, we want to get connected to reality as much as possible.
0: Have you ever reflected on the question of what made Alvin Planning that way, though? I mean, how did he like who was the guy that who was his Alvin Planningo that said it's
1: a really hey, good question? Uh,
0: so you're thinking for yourself, right? I mean, yeah, you just said that doesn't make any sense to you. So why don't you just kind of pursue that and try to do good work,
1: try to f- figure out how to really good question justify yeah. that for other people? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. You know, I know his teachers. Um, who, who the most famous teachers he had were not not theists at all um but they were yeah. eccentrics i think okay. um and so that maybe helps right um you know it's interesting because i think i think you know, the really best work in philosophy tends to be done by people who are eccentric or who are out of step with the with the majority but in academia there's a that that sort of person is almost is very rare, right? rare more rare in academia than almost anywhere else. Actually, in our society, probably. So um, that's the well. Big, there's a lot experience. of
0: experience. Well, there's p- tremendous pressure to fit in. I mean, just think yeah. of the term
1: <laughs> peer review. Exactly. Just, just look at that.
0: <laughs> that's that's that, right. That that explains that's it right, right.
1: there. Right? If you that's don't conform, conforming. that's yeah. right. I mean, our business is mostly well, other directed. Right, That is right. exactly for this reason you're saying. I mean, how do I advance by getting other people to recognize the value of my work? Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're super other directed and that, that creates yeah. lots of problems.
0: I guess it's to be preferred from some of the other alternatives, which would be a king would say there's one guy and he, he's like, yeah. yep, that's, the, that's a good monograph. Well, what yeah. I think is, um, as,
1: but I think we need more. We need more of just sheer randomness. Actually, I think. <laughs> outliers. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think outliers. we. Used to, I mean, we used to have that even when I first started out. I think academia was less uh, centralized in a sense, mm. uh, and so you would end up. You know, if you're a bright kid and you grew up in Texas, you probably end up teaching at somewhere in Texas, and uh, and you would never think about trying to go to Princeton or. Stanford or whatever you just have your career and do your thing and so it, it allowed you freedom to be yourself and not to be part of the crowd whereas now everything's so centralized right you want to get you want you want to get publications and all those really good journals and all that and so you're constantly on a treadmill of trying to satisfy other people and uh, yeah. I, think I think it's a problem i really do
0: let's talk about time is time travel yeah. possible um i i mean i i'm just getting right to some of the yeah. issues T- right. time travel and then another one since we've re- referenced uh, a christian belief here in this podcast i feel like maybe it does god know the future if so what's the point of prayer even if he doesn't know the future what's the point of prayer <laughs> i don't yeah. know i mean it's kind of yeah. i've always wondered um like at one time i I was kind of, I I goof around a lot and I, I, during a prayer, I prayed that the North would win the civil war. Mm. And then I gave myself credit for praying that we did, turned out we did win the civil war (laughs) and God (laughs) must have seen my prayer. And um, we, you know, the slaves are freed (laughs) because of me. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But, you know, so those kind of puzzles about Mm. time, there's different theories about time A and B theory and.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so, um, well, my view is definitely that time travel is impossible, Um, you know, except for the kind that we always do all the time, which is to travel into the future, so to speak, into later times. But to, you know, especially to try to go back into the past, uh, yeah, I think that's impossible. Um, And it raises interesting questions about, well, first of all, why do I think it's impossible? Um, I'm, very much impressed by the so-called grandfather paradox, which you may have heard of. I'm sure some of your readers may have heard of, yeah. listeners may have heard as well. You know, the the it's a problem that you face whenever you do a time travel story, right? But uh, but in this particular paradox, uh, you, I let's say the time traveler go back in time, and I kill my grandfather when he's a baby, and so now it's impossible for me to be conceived, right? Because there's no grandfather to you know conceive my father and so on. So there's no time traveler. So there's no murder. So, and you, you get into a kind of a uh, loop of, of contradiction there. Right. Um, now, um, why do I think that's a problem for time travel? I mean, one response, this is again, David Lewis response is to say, well, you can travel all you want in time. You just can't kill your grandfather or anything like that, right? <laughs> so you can go back in time. and Whatever you do, it will have to conform to what actually happened in order to produce you in the first place, right? Uh, so, so the thought is I go back in time. There's my grandfather. I've got a bazooka. Right? <laughs> I shoot it <laughs> at him. And every time I try, something's going to go wrong, right? The bazooka doesn't fire or whatever, right? So the, the grandfather somehow survives.
2: Wiley Coyote.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's got exactly, <laughs> exactly. I think my grandfather is, is, is like the roadrunner and no matter what I do, it's, it's going to fail. The
2: roadrunner counterfactual. That's good. Yeah. At, at least <laughs> and, get your and,
0: money back at the army Navy store.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So this goes back actually to, to the chapter we talked about with causal powers, because if you believe there are causal powers, then you have a problem, right? Because I go back in time with the power to kill my grandfather, right? And then I exercise that power, he's dead, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's no ifs, ands, and buts about it, right? Or even if it's just a probabilistic power. So I've got the disposition to do things that'll make it 99% chance that... You'll die, or even one percent chance to die. Fine. And then just keep doing the time travel over and over again, right? Trying to, you know, wily coyote like way, and eventually you really, you'll, you, really you'll, really you'll kill him, right? Yeah. You'll <laughs> eventually kill him, right? Somehow, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's sad that this has to be such a bloody example, but it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the simplest way to do it. Um, now, now. For Lewis, of course, there are no powers, right? So there are just all these different mosaics of space and time. And of course, there won't be any in which you go back and kill your grandfather because that's logically impossible. But there could be other mosaics where you go back and do other things, that's fine. Mm -hmm. So, So he's not worried about the fact that i go back in time with this lethal power and i exercise it there's no such thing right powers are all extrinsic things that depend on the whole history of the world and so uh so of course you won't succeed in killing your grandfather in that case so it does turn on that on that more basic question about powers i think mm-hmm. and now if yeah. if 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 we're right that the time travel is impossible then that suggests that in some sense Right, the past is no longer there to be travelled to, right? Because mm-hmm. if that's so, then that's an explanation as to why time travel is impossible and why, therefore, you don't get into the grandfather paradox sort of thing. Um, there are other things that sort of press you in that direction as well on a on a on an Aristotelian picture, where you you exercise your power and you make you actualize the potentiality of something, right? So there's some water that's not boiling. I heat it, and now it starts boiling. I've actualized that potentiality, right? Um, that suggests that, um, what, that, that the, the change that I'm inducing in the water is what's moving time forward, right? And to talk about time moving forward in this way is to commit yourself to what we call the A-theory, the idea that there's real passage of time, as opposed to a view in which uh, the sort of block universe picture where past, present, and future are all equally there they're all on a on a par right right um and uh from that picture nothing really actualizes anything because it's all there already right yeah. uh and so it's difficult to see how you get a power picture to work with with uh with the b theory now um now the questions you raised about divine foreknowledge well just to those clarify those are, those are really tough. quick
0: yeah, uh, sorry just to clarify really quick the b yeah. theory for people who are barely hanging yeah. on here right b theory is a, an analogy about time that fits with the travel word travel is really a geographical kind of concept it's it's a place concept right so when you think of a a time as analogous to place right so then so that an austin for example is analogous to los angeles in terms of places well then it makes sense you could travel it's just a matter of the technology to do it or the labor to do it right but but um you're saying that that's not really a good analogy for what time is.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right. So the B theory is, is one in which time is very much like space and the past is like another place. The future is like another place, which in principle you could get to. Uh, and just as, you know, we I wouldn't think that Texas existed in a special way, and California is just some kind of fiction, right? <laughs> uh, you know, we're on a par ontologically, even though we're in different places. places. Yeah. Right? Well,
0: Austin and Los Angeles are on right. a par, but right. Orange yeah. County is not on the par with Austin. Just okay, that right,
1: right, exactly. But in any case, on the A theory, you know, the present is sort of real in a way that neither the past nor the future are, right? And so there's an ontological privilege, so to speak, that uh, that uh, metaphysical privilege at the present moment has in some sense. Um, and then this, this does create real problems, I think, theologically. I, I mean, these problems as so you we're all we're all
0: privileged because we're all in the present this yeah is, that's right this is yeah i have ontological
1: privilege because <laughs> we're in the present that's right that's right exactly so yeah, we i'm, should, I'm uh,
0: bringing it i'm making it relevant to the current exactly, issues of the day
1: exactly we should have affirmative action for dead people or people who aren't born yet uh to make sure that they get uh, <laughs> wow. they get their fair shake <laughs> yeah, that's, good. that's really good so uh,
0: ontological privilege just means that it's what you by, by that term you mean that it it's real yeah
1: it's present right. is real okay the present is real in a way that the past and future are not um so there's a, there's some kind of real difference i mean they're you know past and future may have some kind of reality but it's not it's not the same as what we have in the you present. can't go there in other words yeah that's right that's right i mean we're all going to the future so to speak but yeah you can't go there any any other way than than, than just kind of riding along with time as it moves forward but is god, god already is Oh sorry Curtis. Well, I was sorry. just
2: going to say if I weren't worried about time I'd love to talk to you about about uh, ask you ask your views on heaven and mm. uh, and you know the non-physical world and things like that.
1: Yeah. In respect yeah. to these things. Yeah. Well that's a big subject.
2: <laughs> it is. It is. It is. You, it is. The, uh, the thing about and it.
0: people are getting this because everything you mention is linked to other things. Yeah. It's linked yeah. to like explanation and how we know things it's linked to what's appropriate evidence it's linked to what we mean by terms um Um, what are thought experiments uh causal powers in philosophy of science laws of nature um so now getting into philosophy of religion and god does is god in the future or does he know the future do you think
1: yeah so the future able to be known I mean, there's a, there's, there's a big debate, obviously, and <laughs> uh, my preferences are for what are called classical theism, which goes back to Thomas Aquinas, actually also Avicenna, maybe even Plotinus. Uh, and so on that picture, God is outside of time, utterly non-temporal in nature. It, his eternity is not just an everlastingness, but a, but a uh, sort of being beyond the re- limitations of time altogether. Um, And so, um, so then the question is, what does that mean? Right. In terms of, of, of what he knows. Right. Um, I mean, it it really makes sense to ask what God knows now, because he isn't now, right. He's not limited to the now in the the way that we are. Right. Mm -hmm. You ask, what does he know, like timelessly, eternally? Well, of course it's everything. Right past, present, and future because, uh, because he's, he's looking at it from, from that perspective. Um, now, the, the pushback on the other side would be, well, wait a minute, you just got through saying that the present is ontologically privileged, right? Doesn't God know that? Yes, and this, I think he does, right? Uh, but he doesn't know it by virtue of, of any kind of internal modification of himself, right? It's not that he, it's not that he kind of bounces x-rays off of reality and get some kind of feedback and says oh it's 2022 right. that's that's actual now it's <laughs> it's just that it's just he knows it just by virtue of the fact that it's true right uh so so the present moment is just immediately present to god as the present moment um now
0: it, it would be weird to say that god says i I have every reason to believe yeah. that it's 2022. <laughs> right. And right. that's well, my best guess. <laughs> and yeah, and exactly. what, I,
2: what exactly. I like about your explanation, Rob, is is kind of going back to earlier, it's just com- kind of common sense. It, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: What do yeah. you mean? Co- classical theism is common sense, you mean?
1: Seems like it. I think it is what people tend to to adopt if if they understand the distinction. Yeah. I think you have to be sort of talked out of it in a way. Well, um, I would
0: make one complaint though, just the, yeah. the way you phrased it God being outside of time. That's yeah. a, it's a metaphor. That's, yeah. that, that's a metaphor that is yeah. a spatial metaphor. Right. And we just right. had a complaint about the spatial metaphor. Exactly. You know? that's, that's true. That. Very
1: true. Yeah. I mean, strictly speaking, I would just say he's non temporal or atemporal. Gotcha. But, uh, the temporal modifications just have no application to God. And, and Can you draw a picture for
0: us? Uh <laughs> just draw draw it and I'll I feel like I'll get it if you just draw a picture of God and then Yeah, you know, right, exactly. <laughs> that's what you do in philosophy religion. You just draw yeah, on the board, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, right. I mean, you know, there's the classic thing. Like you draw here's the timeline, right? Yeah, that's right. God up that's here right. outside looking down right. on it. This is this is in Boethius <laughs> in the constellation of philosophy in, in book five. Um and I think I think Boethius is on the right track there. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. I mean, it does. You know, it, it does raise interesting questions, like you say about 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 prayer um, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. I, I guess I would say that you you really shouldn't pray about the past. Uh, it, it is, <laughs> from our perspective, you know, it is it is To so Curtis's point about sense? That's right. <laughs> exactly. The future is is open in some way uh, that the past is not. Not just that we don't know the future, but uh, we don't know a lot about the past either, but whatever happened in the past happened, right? It, it has a kind of fixity and settledness, I think. Um, again, this is sort of common sense, again, uh, but I think it can be worked out in, in, in more detail and, and in a way that's consistent with the rest of what we're, we're saying. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: This is well, one of the same favorite topics well,
1: of my students is, is, is worrying about, about time. It's, it's <laughs> a lot of fun to think about.
0: Do they, are they concerned
1: about prayer? do they bring that up some do, do. yeah yeah, yeah. I have, i've got one who's working on term paper on foreknowledge in particular oh interesting. Uh, divine foreknowledge so yeah they they know that that's allowed in my class <laughs> well yeah, there yeah, that's interesting yeah, you yeah. you go
0: out of your way to to uh remove any social obstacles for stuff that most americans would be just perfectly normal talking about i think yeah um yeah th- there's something about the campus that feels a little bit like Disneyland in a way it feels fake. There's something just arbitrarily not like the rest of the United States. It seems like it doesn't matter where you go. Some campuses are not aren't that way, but
1: very few. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: so you have graduate students. Uh, Do you go out of your way to um, help shape the culture for them, uh, make them feel welcome as eccentrics if they're if they're a little eccentric, or do do you have a way of approaching? The culture of a graduate program or is it is it on your radar at all
1: i, I mean our department in particular is pretty good um oh, good. we've got we've got several theists here and um even some political conservatives so so it kind of <laughs> loosens things up a bit uh <laughs> and i uh, know it's unusual so uh, not so all
0: I'm... communist
1: <laughs> no, no exactly well, so... well a
0: lot of people are probably a lot of people don't know what it's like on campuses so they might be surprised because they just think oh the way the campus is if it's in that state's boundary then that's the way the campus is it's like no 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 no, no. there's a lot more in common between like for example columbia university in new york city yeah and um well the way i uh, describe
1: uh, it is each field is like a village right Mm -hmm. so there's the english literature village there's the philosophy village right they're pretty much homogeneous so you could swap the philosophy department from Texas, Michigan, Berkeley, wouldn't make any difference.
0: Because they Alabama. all hire each
1: other. They all hire yeah, each other. It's so. all the same thing. Whereas if you were to switch the engineering department and the philosophy department at Texas, that would be a significant difference, right? Yeah. Although less so than it used to be, but, but it still would be significant difference. So, so the different fields are very different. And in the hard okay. left, if I can call it that way, they proceeded village by village, right? They've taken over, not, not, not state by state, but, but field by field uh, to, to mm-hmm. dominate things. And philosophy is still very much disputed territory. I think we're not uh, not yet overwhelmed by the wokeism, but hmm. yeah, but it's growing. It's it's definitely an issue. Wow, <clears throat> how
0: have you maintained your sanity in that um, in that environment how How do you how do you maintain hope? You seem like a hopeful person. You seem like you're I'd pretty know. well adjusted mentally, and you have.
1: I mean, it definitely helps having you know a few close friends in in the in the field. Even uh, so, I've got two colleagues, especially Dan Bonavac, one of my colleagues here, the one he you yeah. met at, at, at that's uh, right, he was at, at, at our Biola, um, uh, who uh, who helps a lot. Um, and then you know, just being connected to a local church or parish, and uh, uh, and then uh the family and all that. My wife's not a philosopher, so that helps quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Is it hard?
0: Uh- being an academic philosopher and and relating to non-philosophers at home and stuff is it or is it something like you just turn it off at home
1: yeah I've never really found it that hard I mean yeah I guess I do sort of turn it off for the most part yeah just to have more to life than just academia or philosophy Uh, what's your what's your writing process how do you guys collaborate
0: on a book like this it seems like it's very I can't tell who wrote what, but of course mm-hmm. I don't know you guys very well, but um, is it yeah. like you well, said, you well, send Tim was one of my
1: students, you know, uh, here at UT um, before he went off to back to Biola, Biola Talbot. And, uh, and so I knew that he and I, you know, shared a lot of views and our judgments tend to be very, very compatible. So when I got the offer to write the textbook and I was thinking, this is a pretty big job. I don't really know if I can handle it myself. I uh, contacted Tim and said, would you like to collaborate? And he said, sure. And the publisher said, sure. And it worked out really well. I mean, we we just initially kind of sketched out what we thought the book should look like. And again, we pretty much agreed about that. And then we just split the chapters 50, 50 for the first drafts. Uh, and then, and then we would, you know, work on each other's drafts and say, well, I think you need to include this or, you know, we, we could cut that. And is this uh, so... all like on email or are you guys talking mm-hmm. on the phone? Or are you faxing? It was mostly email. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Um, I guess, did we do...
2: Facts five chapters over yeah, fax,
1: yeah. <laughs> Facts, yeah facts, mm-hmm. yeah uh pony express uh, <laughs> back in those days yeah the the, uh, the one complaint i think i guess have- it was mostly i guess we did do some phone call maybe even some early zoom stuff yeah wow you had zoom cool i zoom. i wish there were more pictures in the book i i
0: typically mm-hmm. throw away a book if it doesn't have any pictures but yeah. I, I came to uh that's why i throw away all my bibles because there's no pictures <laughs> in it i have the precious moments yeah. bible
1: yeah there you go. that's good. no,
0: but you have a it, it's it's dense but it's it's when you get into it it's readable, especially you have if you have some training and i I would say you gotta start somewhere, so like you've said, this is an uh, upper level book um probably we try to write
1: breath. it so in a way that you wouldn't have to have studied any metaphysics beforehand but right yeah, but a little philosophy yeah yeah, would
0: yeah. you got to know some things but it's it's a wonderful here's a picture so right oops he disappeared
1: yeah there you go. Right. so i, yeah. I happened yeah. upon
0: this and i was like okay i'm gonna keep this book now. yeah
1: yeah but it's, <laughs> no, it's I, a wonderful book well thank you thank you very much
0: all right uh, so i appreciate your time uh My university pleasure. of texas professor thank you, thank you, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, to, thanks for you, uh hanging out with us and describing the project of Metaphysics the Fundamentals to us.
1: My pleasure. Great. Thank you, Errol.